So today, welcome again to the Sunday School Lesson as we begin studying uh, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, Faith and Wisdom. Booker T. Washington had a quote that says, Success is measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life as the obstacles or trials that one has overcome while trying to succeed. you understand that? Life is not so much about the position that you reach in life as much as it is about the obstacles or the trials that you overcome trying to succeed. You know, today we see um, Christians' faith tested in ways we never thought of before. I'm just watching today, and we see in the lives of our Christian athletes who are being pressured to take a knee for a movement and to submit themselves to a cause that is clearly in itself unbiblical. It's unbiblical because it calls for rioting and anti-government destruction of public property. Uh, the message with this group is clear, and it's, folks, it's not about Black Lives Matters. It's about the organization. It's about the anarchy that they, they promote, and the, the, the clear people say that. And so to stand up as a Christian and to support that would be difficult for Christians. But think of the pressure that's being put upon them. Uh, their philosophy of Black Lives Matters is about the destruction of the American way of life. Uh, America, you know, with all her faults, has done more for all people of all races than all nations in the history of man. And it's because of their foundation in Judeo-Christian principles. Um, the pressure to kneel to this anti-Christian group philosophy is so intense that most people just do it. You know, the Nike thing, just do it. They do what they're told so they don't criticize. These Christian athletes who take a stand surely know what James is talking about in today's lesson. So we go to think about the stand that these people have to take. There's several facts facts about life. You know, we know we are born, we live, we die, and then the judgment. But you know, in addition, an additional fact is we all experience sorrow and trials during our time on earth. They may be because of our faith, or they may just be part of life. So the question is, how will we handle it? You know, as we look in the book of James here, some Christians argue whether the book of James is an essential for Christians. Martin Luther was a perfect example. Um, he made a statement that James was a letter full of straw. Um, but understand the reason why he made that statement. He was sometimes frustrated because those who wanted to promote salvation works. And if you read James the wrong way, you might be able to distort the truth of what James is saying. See, James never had the intent of doing that. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther later writes, I think highly of the epistle of James and regard it as valuable. It does not expound human doctrine, but lays such emphasis on God's law. See, Martin Luther knew and taught exactly what the book of James teaches, that if we're a Christian, our life is going to show it. You know, you're all added, show me, your, show me your faith through your love, 
for others. You know, in many ways, we listen to the book of James because it echoes the teachings of Jesus. There are at least 15 references to thoughts from the Sermon on the Mount in the book of James. And this also is a book written by a man who knew the teachings of Jesus and who took them seriously as he wrote this letter. So let's jump on in. Well, before we begin that, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the wording of God's word. Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity we have. We can come to your presence today through these electronic wave links, through the internet. We thank you, Lord, for the great technology that you've provided us to be able to reach out to people that are not in our presence, but to be able to spread the gospel and the word. We thank you, Lord, so much for what you do for us in this time of crisis, of this time of uncertainty, of this time when wrong seems right and right seems wrong, and to stand up for what's right gives you criticism, whereas it used to be standing up for right gave you praise, but not in the society we live in today. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity of giving us this word, this book, to help us understand as we face trials and how we need this message today how we face trials in our lives that we stand. Lord, how we endure and how we do so joyfully is the message you want for us today. Thank you, Lord, for these things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So let's jump on into James chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. And the first part of the verse says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look a little bit about background. There are several men named James mentioned in the New Testament. And uh, this James, of course, is believed to be James the Just, half-brother of Jesus, uh, the brother of Jude, we know. And he led the church in Jerusalem. We also know that these are all biblical facts. There are other men that are mentioned in the Bible named James, include James, the brother of John and Zebedee, you know, the first apostle that was martyred. Uh, he was known as James the Less, James the son of Alphaeus, another of the 12 disciples, and James the father of the other apostle Judas. So we know there was other people named James here in the, uh, in the Bible. Uh, but we know this is James, the brother, James, the servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that this letter was written to the church in Jerusalem and, of course, all around the world because where the Jews were at. And we know that because he says that, right? He says, servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll get there in a minute. Um, James probably received Christ as Savior after his resurrection. You know, we know he nor his brothers believed during the time of Jesus when he walked among them. John 7 5 said, for neither did his brethren believe in him. So we know in John, at that point in time, he didn't believe. It appears that James may have been converted uh, after having special recognition, I mean, a special resur resurrection appearance of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 5, 17, uh, the Bible says, after that he was seen of James and then of all the apostles. This is after Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus took time to specially call James into this ministry. Now, let me tell you, once James was saved, man, he was totally committed. See, Jesus knew this. This was his brother. He knew him. <laughs> he knew him well. He loved him, and James loved Jesus. Jesus was his older brother. Um, but he didn't believe him to be the Savior until after he saw him resurrected. 
And once he did, all these things clicked. Um, it's reported in the early church that James was such a man of prayer that his knees had large and thick calluses, making them look like the knees of camels. It's also said that James was martyred in Jerusalem. He was pushed from the high point of the temple, but the fall didn't kill him. On the ground, he was beaten to death, even as he prayed for his attackers. See, James was a servant of God. And it says in the next part of that verse, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant. This word could better be understood to mean bond servant. Uh, notice he didn't introduce himself as the half-brother of Jesus. He certainly could have. Um, Jesus to, to James was more than just his brother, though. More importantly, Jesus was his Lord. The bond servant is an important word because it's a Greek word, doublos, better simply translated as slave. So he says that a slave, a bond servant, is one who is permanent, has who is in a permanent relationship of servitude to another. A slave. A slave didn't have a choice of how long. They were forever committed. Among the Greeks, um, this word was significant because the Greeks looked down on slaves. You know, they were degrading. To be considered a slave was a degrading thing. Now, you know, back in the days of uh, Jesus' days, slaves came from all walks of life. They were black and white and Hispanic and, and whatever. They were, they were Gentiles and they were, uh, they were barbarians. They didn't, you know, they were Jews. They were, slaves were slaves. So it wasn't a race thing, it was a it was a position thing. And so he says here that bondservant, he was a bondservant. He's a servant of God, a bondservant of God, or a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a permanent relationship, he says. He said, notice the word in there says and. Now that's a, that's significant, where it says the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, because this signifies something here. It signifies that James is saying there's two. There's God and there's Jesus Christ. This does not mean now that he's trying to say that Jesus was not God. On the contrary, he's signifying his faith that Jesus is God. We know this by the use of the word Lord. So he says both. He says, I'm a servant to God the Father and God the Son. He was signifying that they were equal. Talking about the Trinity. So James clearly believed that Jesus was God. The word Lord in the ancient Greek is kuros. It merely means the master of doulos, right? Doulos being slaves, bond servant, and then kuros being the master. So he said that I'm the slave and the Lord, the master is Jesus Christ. So it means James considered Jesus God. Um, look at verse the second part of verse one. He says, to the 12 disciples, which are scattered abroad, greetings. To the 12 disciples, you know, I mean, to the 12 tribes. 10 of the 12 tribes are still lost today. I mean, I did some research to see if I could find them. So uh, why does the Bible refer to the, the 12 tribes? Remember, James was the leader of the Jerusalem church at this time. You know, his flock was mainly Jews, limited Gentiles, because if they were Gentiles in there, they probably had to, be uh, circumcised and those things like that. But when a preacher preaches his message, 
on Sunday, when you sit today in your congregation, the preacher preaches a message to you, you he's speaking directly to the congregation. But no doubt the words that he speaks could be used across the board to other people. This message that I'm teaching today is directed to a group of people, but clearly this message could be taken and is, and is put on the internet, put on YouTube and on other things, and it, it hopefully applies to a variety of people so they can understand it. So here he says that he, he's preaching his message to his flock, uh, but certainly this letter applies to all Christians. Also remember at this time, there were probably most of the Christians at this time were probably Jews because we said that's where they mostly went priest to. It didn't mean that it wasn't growing. Obviously today there's more Gentile Christians than there are Jewish Christians, but the world at that time was the opposite. So the 12 tribes is a Jewish figure of speech. You know, we see that Jesus referred to that Matthew 18, 28. He said, and Jesus said unto them, verily I say unto you, that ye which follow me in the resurrection, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. See, they are dispersed right now. They're still scattered abroad. Paul refers to this twelve tribes in his speech before King Agrippa. And he says in Acts 26, 7, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our 12 tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. See, Paul, there was, they don't know what the other 10 tribes were, but Paul's still referring to the 12 tribes. So the concept of 12 tribes among the Jewish people was still strong, even though they had not lived in their tribal allotment. For centuries, they still believed that God knew where these 12 tribes are. And does God know where they're at today? Sure he does. Of course he does. Um, so just as Paul had his mission to the Gentiles now, James had his mission to the circumcised or to the Jews. That was James' main mission. He says, which are scattered abroad. See, at this time, the Jewish people were scattered all over the world. Um, there was a Christian presence among all the Jewish communities throughout the world. So as they spread, these Jewish communities spread, so did the gospel. Now, how scattered were they, the Jews in the world at this time? Well, Josephus, who wrote during the time of, uh, uh, he was actually a historian. He was actually a military leader who became a historian. And he wrote the, the book of Josephus. It's a great book. Uh, but, but he actually says that there is no city, no tribe, whether Greek or barbarian, in which Jewish law and Jewish customs have not taken root. So Josephus says that at this point in time in history, this was after, this was right before the fall or right at the fall of Jerusalem, there was, Jews were scattered all over the world. Um, see, the book was written, but this book particularly was written to the body of Christians as it existed at the time. And he uses the final verse of that. He says, greetings. Now this is a greeting. The greeting is this a typical uh, salutation that is given customary Greek way of reading, of opening a letter. Paul never used it. You know, he preferred to salute his readers with the words of grace and peace. But James uses the more customary salutation. But remember, he's referring, he was talking to the Jews. And the Jews were much more, uh, you know, prop, prim and proper, you might say. So listen to verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Now, 
He says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. James regarded trials as inevitable. He didn't say when. Uh, I mean, he said when, not if you fall into various temptations, right? He said when. He said you should not be discouraged by these trials, but recognize them for what they are, an opportunity to be joyful that you can overcome the trial. He said we can count it all joy in the midst of trials because they're used to produce patience. So it's a, it's a progression. New King James Version actually translates the word uh, temptations into trials. And trials actually signifies affliction, persecution, or trials of any kind. So here he's saying, you know, when you fall into diverse trials that come your way, and they could be a variety of types. It says, when ye fall. Understand, this is not a deliberate step-by-step -step process that you would take to follow sin. You know, you're actually deliberately doing that. This event comes on you suddenly, you know, similar to someone tripping. You don't plan for a trip, because if you plan for a trip, you wouldn't trip, right? Um, this is not planned, but it happened. So when you trip up, when you fall, you know, when something suddenly happens that out of nowhere, this thing happens. Everything's going great and suddenly this thing happened. Um, this could mean two things, by the way. It could mean the trials that tempt you to sin. Paul said in Romans 7, 18-20, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwell in me. Paul is saying, listen, I am always tempted by sin. The things that I should do, I wind up not doing. And the things that I shouldn't do, I wind up doing. Not because I plan to do it, but because I am tempted of sin. It's a trial I have to go through. But you know, more than that, the other thing that this verse is also referring to is trials that we face every day that don't involve sin, but involves difficulties of the human life. Genesis 3.17 And to Adam he said, this is God talking to Adam because of his sin, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and has eaten of the tree of which I command thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. See, God promised us a cursing. He promised us trials. Psalms 90.10 says, The days of our years are threescore and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow for it is soon cut off and we fly away. He said, listen, you might live 70 or 80 years. But during that time, you're going to find a lot of sorrow, a lot of labor, a lot of work. It's not going to be an easy task. Isaiah 51.11 says, Therefore redeem, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing in Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. See, when the Lord comes, we will no longer have that sorrow and mourning. But until then, we experience that in our life. No matter who you are, no matter what you do in life, there's going to be trials come your way. And we know Revelation 21.4 says the great promise, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. 
and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, neither shall any more pain, for the former things are passed away. See, sometimes sin causes us to be tempted, but more often the sorrows of this world can be caused can cause to doubt God even more. So it's not just sin, but it's the cares of this world, the things that come upon us. We question, why did God let this happen? Listen, life happens. Life is there. Sin is why things happen, yeah. Because man sinned, we have sorrow. We have sorrow all the days of our life. That's a fact. We have trials and troubles that come our way. Nothing we can do about that. We face them, but how do we face them? You know, he said, that, he said, count it all joy when they come your way. Let's go a little further. He said, why? Why would we count it joyful when we have these trials, these temptations that come our way? Why? He says in verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Knowing this, he says, this is a truth we should all know to be fact, he says. Knowing this, you know this. You all know this. The world knows. The lost know this. We all have experienced this. When we're weak, he is strong. He said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproach, in necessities, in persecution, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul said, I know trouble comes my way. And when it does, it gives me an opportunity to trust in God. When times are bad, I can trust in God. When sin is at my doorsteps, I can trust in God. When things are tough, when we see the inevitable. And unfortunately, folks, we recognize we live, we're born, we live, and we die. And we die something. And we don't like to think about that. But death is a surety. Unless the Lord returns today, we're all hoping for the rapture. I hope for the rapture every day, too. But if not, we face death. We face sickness. Because you don't die healthy. Right? You don't, do you? It's the point of man wants to live and then judge, wants to die and then the judgment. See, we're all going to die. Because of man's sin, we will die unless we're raptured. And you don't die healthy. So you're going to have trials. You're going to have troubles. You're going to have problems in this life. That's just the way it is. But how do we face those things? Paul says, when I am weak, he is strong. I can do those things. So he said, knowing this, knowing that these things are, knowing these troubles are coming your way, knowing these things, he said, knowing what? Faith is tested through trials, not produced by trials. Trials reveal what faith we can, we, what faith we do have. Not because God doesn't know how much faith we have, but so that our faith will be evident to ourselves and those around us. God knows the faith we have. He doesn't need to give us trials to know our faith, but we need to know our faith. You know, it's like uh, uh, exercising. Uh, you know, the first of the year when I start cutting the grass, I have to take a break. <laughs> but as I go through the season and I start doing more exercise, I start getting out doing more, I can cut more, I can go further. It's like the marathon runner who runs and preparing. You know, we have a, uh, one of our friends who's went to our church before, 
who's a marathon runner, and he didn't just start running marathons, right? He started running a little. He ran a little, and then a little more, and a little more, and a little more. Now he runs marathons because he built himself up. How do we handle temptations? How do we handle trials? See, God puts these things in our way to strengthen us. He allows us to get stronger. So when the devastating blow hits us, when those things that we, our faith, we crush by, we're ready for it because God gives us these trials along the way. You know, how do we handle depression? I saw something today, someone talking about depression. Depression is real, but God provides a way. Put faith and trust in him. These trials can help us. He says, why? Because we realize that it works patience. These trials, this faith, he says there, knowing this, that the trial of your faith worketh patience. It builds you to be more patient. The ancient Greek word for patience is humamon. This word does not describe now passive waiting, you know, patience. But instead, it, it, it's about active endurance, patience, holding that rock along. How you on it? Be patient. Be patient. Wait through it. It's going to get over with. You know, when you have pain, you have a big pain, you hold yourself through it. You feel that pain and you think, oh, until it passes. That's patience. What are you going to do? Kill yourself? You say, I mean, that's really the only choice to stop the pain or endure it. Patience through it. It isn't so much the quality that helps you sit quietly in the doctor's room as it is the quality that helps you finish the marathon. The quality of your patience. It's not sitting waiting, but it's waiting to finish the marathon, getting through. It's endurance. So it says, faith worketh endurance, you could say. Hubamon comes from hubo, under, and mino, to stay, abide, remain. At its root, it means to remain under. Faith helps you remain under the trial. It is a picture of someone under a heavy load and choosing to stay instead of trying to escape. The philosopher Philo called Hubamon the queen of virtues. The word patient describes the frame of mind which endures. Patience is the frame of mind which endures. See, faith worketh endurance. These trials, uh, it says here, so we go back to the verse. It says, uh, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, the trying of your faith, where you got your trust at, worketh endurance. The more you're tried, the more you endure, the stronger you can endure the next thing. Um, notice that it says faith that is tested. Spurgeon said, faith is, a vi is vital to salvation as the heart is the vital to the body. Hence, the javelins of the enemies are always aimed at the essential grace. See, they're always, the enemy wants to question your faith, hurt your faith, because that makes your faith weak. You can't endure. Your patience is weak. Then your faith becomes weak. If trials do not produce faith, what does? 
uh, Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Supernaturally, faith is built as, in us as we hear, as we understand, as we trust in God. Faith. How do we endure these temptations? Because we study the word of God. We allow God to build our faith by reading his word. Staying in his word. Putting our faith and trust in him no matter what. No matter what. Job said, though he may slay me, yet I trust in him. He said, no matter what, I'm going to trust in God. No matter what. Job was able to endure the hardships that many of us would have been crushed by and was able to do so. Why? Because his faith had produced patience. Trials don't produce faith. But when trials are received with faith, it produces patience. You know, now this doesn't happen all the time. If if difficulties are received in unbelief and grumblings, then trials can produce bitterness and discouragement. You know, I knew how many people say, I used to trust in God, but this happened, and I don't believe in a God that would do these things. And you don't have faith. You didn't have faith. You didn't read your Bible. You didn't study God. You didn't know that God loves you no matter what. Things come our way. They come our way. All of us will have those ways. James exhorts us to count it all joy. James did not tell his readers to enjoy the trials. He said, count it all joy. He didn't say, he didn't say it's gonna be fun. He said, count it as joy, meaning be thankful when they come so you can have the opportunity to put your faith to the test and to build your patience, which will help you on the next more significant trial. You know, God sends you a trial and it's not a big deal, but it's a pain. Think, oh, uh, thank you, Lord, for this trial so that I know bigger ones are coming. Thank you, Lord, for this problems we're going through right now because I know worse problems are to come. Trust me. Trust him. Statement of fact. Worse things are coming. We were born, we live, we die. You understand? Worse things are coming. So therefore, how do we endure those things? Verse 4 says, But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The work of patience, endurance, comes slowly and must be allowed to grow. You don't instantly have patience. I'm not very patient. I have to practice patience. And I'm not very patient at practicing patience. <laughs> we all want it now. We live in a now society. And the internet so it all makes it easy for us, right? We can bump in there and find it anytime, any question, any answer. Our students are growing up in a society like that, that at a touch of a finger or a touch of a button, we can get anything, any answer, you know, uh, on anything, any subject. We think about it, we get the answer immediately. Patient endurance is a mark of a person who is perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He said, patient endurance. Remember the word patient it could be considered endurance. So patient endurance is a mark of a person who is perfect, complete. What do we mean by perfect? You know, um, some think this is a thought borrowed from the Grecian games because no doubt they had them like the, the Olympics today. Uh, that were, uh, they considered an athlete was perfect if he had exercised, if he had done what he needed to do and got the victory. You know, if he was entire, he won the, at the time, it was called the the Pentathlon. 
you know, where there are five different activities that the, the, the super champion wins all of those. He's perfect. Why? He wins it all. He wins it. He endures. He's put forth the effort. And therefore, he's the best at it. He's perfect at it because he wins. He's above everybody else. Now, somebody else may think that he's using the phrase related to a sacrifice. Because, you know, potential sacrificial animals had to be judged. They were judged to be perfect. They lacked nothing before they could be offered to God. They, they made sure they didn't have any moles or any deformities. It meant the animal had been tested and approved. It wasn't a perfect animal. It was perfect for the, the, the task. See, so when we read this thing here that says, uh, but let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire. One another. That means you're perfect for the task. The task is coming your way. If we work, if we allow this trials to count it as joy that God gives us the opportunities to endure these trials, to build our patience, we will be perfectly fit, perfectly able to handle the troubles and the trials. Spurgeon said the natural tendency of trouble is not to sanctify, but to induce sin. A man is very apt to become unbelieving under affliction. That is a sin. He is apt to murmur against God under it. That is a sin. He is apt to put forth his hand to come ill ways of escaping from his difficulty, and that would be sin. Hence, we are taught to pray, lead us not into temptation, because the trial has itself a measure of temptation, and if it were not neutralized by abundant grace, it would bear us towards sin. See, that's why God says, lead us not into temptation, temptations being to do sin, but allow our patience to grow. Allow these trials that come in our life to build our patient endurance so we're perfectly able to handle them when they come our way. Trials can prove to make us better able to endure more challenging times we all must face. Two blessings of perfect perfection. Personal perfection in the knowledge of the gospel and the will of God. Philippians 3, 14 and 15 says, I press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if, any, if in any way we be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto us. See, we're perfectly able to endure. Uh, uh, the personal completeness in all grace. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray your God, whole spirit and soul and body, be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, these trials, thank the Lord for trials that test your faith, that build your endurance, so that you're perfectly able, see how the step works? You're perfectly able to handle whatever comes your way. Verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and unbraideth not, that it shall be given him. If any of you lack wisdom. Trials push us to seek wisdom of others, doesn't it? You know, some people want to talk to Dr. Whatever on TV. But we know that they don't have the wisdom. The wisdom we need, we know that the wisdom we need to, to go through these things we're experiencing come from God. In times of trial, we have to determine one of two things. One, is this something God wants us to eliminate by faith? You know, is it something we're doing we need to stop doing? The trial, the temptation? 
Or is it something God wants us to persevere through by faith? You understand? Do we want to eliminate it by faith or persevere in it by faith? Get, uh, get it out of the way or get through it. That's basically what God wants us to do. This requires wisdom. In trials, we need wisdom a lot more than we need knowledge. You know, I can know all kinds of things, but how I apply that, right? Knowledge is raw information, but wisdom knows how to use it. Someone once says that knowledge is the ability to take things apart, but wisdom is the ability to put it back together. He said, let him ask of God. Proverbs 1, 7 said, fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Remember this whole thing we've been talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To receive wisdom, we simply ask of God who gives wisdom generously without despising our request, without reproach. He says he will let him ask of God. The language here implies humility. He doesn't say, let him buy it of God, let him demand it of God, let him earn it of God. Oh, no. Let him ask it of God. There's a group of people that says they know the name of God and therefore they can command God to give them something. That is not biblical, by the way. It's not. What's biblical is you ask of God and God will give you what you need, not what you want. What you need. We talked about last week that God will go in the last lessons that we talked about that, that God will give you what you ask for, but you ask the wrong things. You know, he says that give it to all men liberally. God gives us wisdom as we ask abundantly. The more you ask, you say, well, I've asked, I keep asking God for forgiveness. Ask him. I ask him forgiveness every day. Ask him. I ask for help. Ask him. God has not limited his asking. He gives according to his great, his, his excellence, greatness. Alexander the Great once Gave a poor man a city. And when this poor man refused it, said, no, no, it's too great for me. Alexander answered, the business is not what thou art fit to receive, but it is becometh me to give it. See, Alexander said, it's not about you. I'm the one who gives you the city because I have the ability to do so. Ask God. God has the ability to give you great things to help your faith, to build your patience to make you perfect. You see? He says, upright not meaning, without reproach, unfaulting, without any kind, kind words, without resentment, without rebuke. God doesn't, <laughs> John Calvin said, this was added to prevent one from coming to God in fear that they'd come too often. See? Knowing God's generosity, he never despised or resented us for asking for wisdom. Should encourage us to ask him. Since we know God doesn't mind you asking over and over and over again. He wants to give, 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 give. you got to ask. He says, he promises us here, it will be given to him. When we want wisdom, the place to begin and end is in the Bible. See, God has given us his word, his wisdom. How do we know the knowledge? Knowledge of reading the word and then allowing God's Holy Spirit to give us the wisdom to apply that word. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith, not wavering. For he that waveth is like a wave in the sea, driven and tossed. Let him ask in faith. To get the response of God he needs and wants, there must be two conditions. To get what you ask. First of all, you must believe God has the wisdom that you need. Why would you ask? If you don't believe he has the wisdom to do it. Our request must be made in faith that God will give it. So, first thing, does he have the ability to give it? Hmm, yes, he does. Uh, then, will he, will he give it to me? 
Well, if it meets the requirements of the things that he said for us to ask for, then yes, he will. Because he said, if you ask in my name for these things, I will give it to you. So therefore, he asked us, if wisdom, if you seek wisdom, ask God. God will give it to you. If you want wisdom on how to endure a problem, God says, ask me. I'll give you. You're not out here by yourself. He said nothing wavering. James put another condition on the quest. If one really wants an answer, he really wants wisdom to endure, to overcome a trial, he must not waver in his belief or his request. Simply put, he must completely believe that God will give him the answer. He must not cease his request for the wisdom to handle the trial until it's over. Don't just pray and then be done with it. God wants to see you have faith. He wants to build your faith up, build your endurance up through your faith. Keep asking, keep asking, keep asking. Believe him. Now, sometimes the answer is no, but that doesn't mean that God's not hearing you and giving you what you need. But remember, we live, we die. I mean, we were born, we live, and we die. Don't get tied up in those things that, well, God's going to do something for me. He's not done for anybody else. He promised us death, and his word is true. So, I mean, that's why I always see people get tied up in these things. Well, God God gives you what you need. And sometimes, let me tell you, the greatest blessing for a Christian is to go on. Understand that? The greatest blessing for a child of God is to be in the presence of God, not on this earth. This is where the prayer of many people follow. Spurgeon said, you know, dear friends, that there's a way of praying in which you ask nothing and get it. You ask for nothing and you get it. I always heard this, if you aim for nothing, you'll hit it. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. For he that wavereth, he says in James, is like a wave of the sea. He gives us an example. If you don't want to get your prayers answered, just be like the sea waves, right? Sometimes you have faith and believe strongly, and other times you have little to no faith and don't believe anything. These people rarely get an answer from God to a system. Why? Because you give up. You, you don't hold to the end. Even if they get the answer, they'll reject it because they lack faith in the response. Well, it just happened. Well, you know, was this a miracle? No, nah, it, just, it just happened. I don't believe that, you know. Verse 7 and 8 says, let not, For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in his ways. The person who is like the wave in the sea is a given statement of fact. Do not think you'll get anything from the Lord. James is telling them that they will not get an answer and are simply wasting their time. A double man is unstable in all his ways, he said. A double-minded man. To ask God, but to ask him in a doubting way, shows that we are double-minded. If we have no faith, we would never, if we have no faith, we would never ask at all. If we have, if we have no unbelief, we would have no doubting. So to be middle of the ground between faith and unbelief is to be double-minded. Hebert stated that a double-minded is literally two souls who wish to secure both worlds, one for the earth, which he will not give us, another for heaven, which he wants to go. You understand? Jesus told the church in Laodicea that he cannot stand a double-minded person. Revelation 3, 15, 16, Now I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would that thou wert cold or hot, so then because thou wert lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. See, God says, a double-minded man, you don't get anything. Your faith is not going to endure the trials. 
because you've got if you want to endure the trials you want to build your faith you got to build you got to have faith you got to be true to the end verse 9 says let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted being poor comes with lots of diff more difficulties than rich people uh the exaltation referred to here is having his needs met every day and therefore he has something to rejoice over right a poor person rejoices every day i made it to the end of the day like we do i made it to the end of the month thank goodness for first of the month when i get paid right the psalmist says in psalms 37 25 i have been young and now old yet i have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread see the poor can see every day that god will meet their needs verse 10a but the rich in that he is made low. It's easier for the poor to rejoice when they lift it up. It's much more difficult for the rich when they're brought down, right? When they're brought down, the poor forgets all his earthly poverty when he's lifted up out of his distress. The rich forgets all his wealth when he's lifted up out of when he's lifted up out of distress. So, because rich people experience the same problems in life that we do, at a different level, and therefore they must face it, and their money can't help them out. The poor rely on God every day. The rich tend to rely upon their wealth. By Christ, faith in Christ, the two are equal when the rich are brought down and the poor are brought up. Verse 10, the last part of it says, Because as the fire of the grass he fades away, for the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but as withereth the grass and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of fashion of it perish, so also shall the rich fade away in his way. Because of the flower of the grass, he fades away. This is a reminder to those who rely on their wealth. To get them through trials, they may be more comfortable in this life than the poor, but this is only in this lifetime. You understand? You may rely upon those things, but this life fades away quickly. Uh, we know when spring is here because the grass growing, but come fall, it stops growing, and in winter, the grass is dead. It says, the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat. This last part is an illustration of a rich man and his wealth. On the scale of eternity, this is how quickly the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. The rich of this world will undoubtedly fade, will undoubtedly fade away. But James says that the rich man will also fade away. If we put our lives and our identity into things that fade away, we will fade away also. Conclusion, James' message for us today concerns situations we all must face. He's simple enough, though. He says this, you're going to have troubles. You're going to have trials. You need to count it worthy that God is going to help you. These trials, these small trials that we face are helping our faith, show our faith, and build endurance for the next trial. And then the next trial, and the next trial. The patience is about endurance. You know, count it a great thing when God gives you a small trial to go through so that you can build that endurance up. And guess what? Through that endurance, your faith is shown to the world. See, God is putting Christians through these trials, some of them devastating trials, so that the world can see our faith. And our faith we get unwavering, James says, not like a sea, a wave that passes back and forth, but unwavering. We believe that God has the ability to do it and that he will do it because we have faith in him. That's the message for today. You know, Vance Havner said this, sometimes your medicine bottle has on it, shake well before using. 
That's what God has to do with some of us sometimes. He has to shake us well before we're able to be used. I pray today that as God shakes us, as God sends us through trials that will come, that we count it joy, not enjoy it, but count it as joy that God is giving us the opportunity to test our faith and build our patience and endurance. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity we have. We can come, we can worship you through your wood. Help us, Lord, to have the faith that James talks about here. Help us, Lord, to endure these trials that come our way. Help us, Lord, if there's sin, to put it aside, and if it's troubles, to persevere through it. Help us, Lord, build our endurance one trial at a time. We know, Lord, your promise here that if we lack wisdom on how to get through those, to ask you because you will give it to us in abundance. Thank you, Lord, for what you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your time and your attention.